Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. A lot of times on this podcast, we talk about privacy issues. And one of the things you should always make sure to keep on top of is your spending habits. With the rise of money transfer apps like Venmo, once again, you have to make sure you're on top of those privacy settings. By default, Venmo's setting is set to public, which means every time you make a transaction, it's visible to everyone. So if you're paying somebody for, uh, thanks for that Uber ride, or hey, thanks for getting me lunch, people are going to know it. We spoke to Xavier Harding. He's a reporter for Mike. And we talked about some of the simple steps you can take to keep your spending habits private. A researcher named Hong Duzi Duke, she was the one who pointed this out recently. She's a researcher based in Berlin. She's a former Mozilla fellow. She noticed that you know Venmo is public by default. There are three options, private, so no one can see your transactions. You have friends only, so only your friends and the friends of the person you're sending money to can see your transactions. And then there's public, so anybody with an internet connection can see your transactions. So that's the option that Venmo sets everyone to by default. If you never go into the settings app, the settings section of your Venmo account, all your transactions are just out there. So she noticed this and she found the site that you can use to just see all the incoming transactions they're going through Venmo at one time. And she cataloged them all. She, of, all the, of all the transactions in 2017, she took note of over 200 million. She pointed out the fact that you can notice interesting patterns when you kind of look at all the transactions at once. I'm not always on the Venmo app, but when I use it, I always take a little bit of time to kind of scroll through what people are doing. It's kind of one of my favorite things to do because it's, it's fun. Yeah. You get to see what people are paying each other for. And very much so with noticing patterns or even to a smaller extent, just those one-time transactions that you see. I have my app open right now. People that I don't know, you know, they have their comments. So, so one is an emoji of a movie ticket. So they paid somebody back for getting them their movie, a cell phone and the little money flying emoji, you know, pay, payment for my cell phone bill, house payments, yeah. people put electric bill. You know, you can tell all this stuff that people are paying each other for and you can use it to deduce patterns about people, learn more about people. But that's not it, because there's a lot of your public data that you don't know you're giving away, especially with Venmo. It links a lot of times to your Facebook profile and things like that. So I can troll around for a while and find out a lot about you, and you will never know who I am. Exactly. I think one thing is interesting is that, you know, to sign up for Venmo, one option you have is to link your Facebook account. And the Facebook account profile photo shows up in this public website where you can just view all the transactions if you have it linked. So if you can look at the first name and last name, which are also available on this public site, and then you can also look at the Facebook profile photo, you can go to Facebook, cross-reference the name with the photo, and then learn way more about a person just from using, having those two pieces of information. You can find out where they live, more accurately the area they reside in, maybe not the address, as well as you know their interests, who else they're talking to and hanging out with. The study was really interesting. The study actually noted some of the most interesting Venmo users, which they call the humans of Venmo. She noticed drug dealers and one person they called the yellowist, yellow as in you, know, you only live once, and they were just eating and drinking so much soda and pizza. <laughs> and to the point where it calls into question, you know, if an insurance company saw this, could it possibly give you higher rates on like life insurance? 
if they notice how poorly you're eating. You're giving that information out publicly. So it's not like you can say later, well, I was kidding or it was something like that. It's like, no, well, you know, yeah, we saw all of your transactions, basically. That's a huge point. I think the fact that, you know, this data becomes public, once that gets out there, you can't put that genie back in the bottle. There was a, a Wall Street Journal article also recently made that takes into account some of this stuff. It says if you make a mistaken payment to somebody also, good luck getting that back. It's as simple as typing one letter off on a person's name and then boom, you send it to the wrong person. And they talk about this person who got a mistaken payment from somebody and then decided to go and investigate a little bit. And they found out later that the person sent them a payment mistakenly. They researched them. Like, as you said, you know, it links back to a Facebook. You can find out more details from them. And they had made payment to another person for a quote unquote lesbian game. Later on, they were kind of embarrassed about it and they were trying to demand the money back. And you just got to be very careful with all this stuff. Luckily, Venmo puts measures in place so that there's at least a little bit of friction when you're paying some money to a new uh, user who's not part of your contact list. And luckily for them, they're able to get the money back if the recipient did not already cash out. When you're using these apps, you have to take the utmost care, especially when it has to do with your money. It's a simple fix. The uh, author of the study, Public by Default, they used Venmo's publicly available information to track all the transactions of all these users. What do we do to protect ourselves? One thing that users can do to protect themselves is very easy. You just go into your Venmo app, hit the little hamburger menu in the top left, and then you go to settings at the bottom. Uh, there's a privacy section. Hitting that privacy button, you see you know, public, friends, private, hit private, hit friends, take it off of public. Do not let the internet see your transactions because who knows what that data could be used for down the road. Right. Or what creeps are just trying to look who you're paying and what you're paying for. Keep uh, your pizza payments to yourself. <laughs> exactly. Xavier Harding, reporter for Mike. Thank you very much for joining us. Take care, Oscar. When President Trump had mentioned that he wanted to create a space force, it was met with skepticism. A lot of people were joking about it, saying, you know, what the hell is this? What's, what's this next crazy Trump thing that he's talking about? But it's actually a very important concept. It might be much more necessary than you think. We spoke to Garrett Graff. He's a contributing editor to Wired, and he joined us to discuss why we need to look out for some of these stuff. It has a lot to do with GPS. It has to do with China and Russia being major players in the space game. So we started off by talking about why we need to step up that space game. Space is an area where the United States has been primarily dominant for a generation. And we've gotten sort of very used to that in the course of the way that we sort of live our lives and live in the military and other fields. Sort of more and more of our daily life is moving up into outer space. And so that's our telephone calls, that's our banking system, and really the entire modern world is underpinned by the GPS system, the global positioning system and the satellite constellation above. We think of it you know, as uh, your way to get around on Google Maps, but it, it's really much more than that. It's the world's most accurate clock. And so it's used by banks to run the ATM networks. It's used by the stock exchanges to run stock trades. It's used by gas stations to run their gas pumps and their credit card networks. And then, you know, of course, it's used for Uber and Lyft to order your cars and get the drivers to you and get the drivers to where they're going. That's sort of the backdrop against which, and as you said, January 11, 2007, the U.S. Air Force was monitoring 
what had appeared to be sort of preparations for a Chinese missile launch of an anti-satellite weapon against one of China's own satellites. And at the time, no one really expected China to be able to either pull off a successful test, but also sort of didn't really believe that at the end of the day, China would blow up one of its own satellites. Anytime you're blowing up something in space, that debris field, the space junk created by that uh, explosion in outer space, can last for decades and impedes the ability of anyone else to launch satellites into that particular orbit and impedes the safety and security of all of the other satellites in outer space. It's a huge technological advancement, too, because, you know, when you look at things in space or pictures or whatnot, things seem to be moving slow. They're not. Things are moving fast. These satellites are always in motion. And for a, a missile to hit a satellite like that, I mean, it's there. That's a precise target hit right there. So someone uh, compares it to sort of the marksmanship equivalent of a sniper being able to hit a bullseye on a speeding train in one direction while riding a speeding train in the other direction. It's a feat of immense technical skill as well as very precise targeting capabilities. And so in January 2007, the U.S. watched as China launched this anti-satellite missile. It went up into orbit and blew up an old Chinese satellite. And that was a real turning point for the United States because we have built much of our economy and certainly much of our military's advantage on these billion-dollar massive bus-sized satellites sitting out there unprotected in outer space. And now, as of 2007, people began to realize that other adversaries had been noticing America's reliance on outer space systems, and we're beginning to move to counter that. Yeah, that's the big... China has actually spoken publicly about America's vulnerability in space as America's Achilles heel. Yeah, that's and that leads to the, the fears and why we might need a quote-unquote space force. Uh, China, the Chinese, Russians, they notice this stuff, and if they take an opportunity to cripple us in that way, then we're sitting ducks in a lot of other ways. In your piece, you say that 14 of the 16 infrastructure sectors that the Department of Homeland Security defines as critical all rely on GPS for their operations. So if you take out some GPS satellites, it puts us in a serious disadvantage at that point. Yeah, and uh, it's the way our fighters navigate. It's the way our ships navigate. It's the way that our missiles know where to go and how we help direct bombs sort of safely and securely to their targets. And that's just the military applications. As I said, you know, there are immense civilian parts of this system that most of us sort of don't think about. You probably interact with the GPS system overhead dozens of times a day and probably most days don't think about it at all. And it's this immense vulnerability. And so it's sort of, as you said, that we get so used to these sort of seemingly out of the blue, wacky pronouncements from President Trump that I think most Americans saw his rambling comments at a couple of different points this spring about the need for a space force as just another Trumpian spout off. But in fact, it represents a very serious ongoing public policy debate that actually has been moving through Congress uh, and the Pentagon over the last couple of years. The House National Defense Authorization Act last year actually called for the creation of the Space Force. They called it the Space Corps as a sort of subservient part of the Air Force 
much like the Marines are part of the Department of the Navy. Donald Trump now is talking about something different that would be a full sixth branch of the military separate uh, with its own, you know, Secretary of the Space Force. But this is something that actually really didn't come out of nowhere and probably actually very accurately reflects the threats and the intelligence briefings that the president is getting from the nation's military and intelligence leaders. When I was speaking to then Director of National Intelligence Jim Clapper as he was leaving office in the fall of 2016, he actually said to me at the time that space was one of his top three concerns in the in the world. And it's something that his successor, Dan Coates, the current director of national intelligence, has sort of reiterated this year in what's called the global threat assessment, sort of the annual major roundup of the world's top threats. Let's move forward a little into let's say, uh, a future type of space war. What are the main categories of space weapons that could be used to target satellites and other things like that? This is part of what makes this story so fascinating is that in the intelligence community and in the U.S. military, as well as certainly in the American public, actually have very little visibility into what our main peer and near-peer adversary nation states are developing as space weapons. Russia and China have, we know, very active space and counter space weapons. And one of the ones that is certainly, no pun intended, on our radar is something known as Object 2014-28E, which was something that the Russians launched into orbit in 2014 that the U.S. originally thought was basically just space junk. Uh, It was something that uh, didn't appear to be doing anything at all. And then the U.S. began to sort of notice it actually moving around in outer space. This is something that most satellites don't have the capability to do. And part of what makes space such a challenging domain for intelligence analysts is it's really hard to know intentions. If you're looking at a country like China or Russia that is saying that uh, it's building sort of space repair capabilities, well, those look a lot like space destructive capabilities. Mm -hmm. Um, As I had sort of one analyst say to me, if something has a grappling arm to help fix something, well, that grappling arm can also rip something out. (laughs) We have our secrets too, though. You know, we have uh, some unmanned space shuttle-like vehicles that have been orbiting the Earth. Uh, There was one that was orbiting the earth for like 718 days and it was like a huge secret right so you know at the same time we're also right now doing who knows what and like you said also you know the rise of companies like spacex and everything in the near future space low-level orbit all that stuff is going to be very very impacted with a lot of debris and, and and travel and stuff like that so it is kind of important to really develop these type of defense measures that really gets to sort of part of the heart of this debate around the space force or the space core This is going to be an arena, a domain in the government speak that is increasingly populated by commercial interests and even tourists. Um, You know, you've got Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin rockets. You've got Elon Musk's SpaceX. You know, you're going to see space tourists for the first time in the next couple of years beginning to pay to orbit the Earth. And whether we build a true military force looking uh, at outer space, 
focused on space defense and offense, or whether we build something sort of more akin to a space coast guard, sort of something that's more of a police force, sort of a good governance force for outer space is part of the sort of open question around the the development and the evolution of the U.S. space fighting assets. Yeah, it's just such an interesting discussion because you hear Space Force and you think we're getting ready for that big asteroid that's going to hit the Earth soon. And that's really not what this is about. It's it's so much more imminent, something that we really need to be monitoring, because, as you say, if, if our GPS system gets targeted and it, you know, it could collapse the entire global economy at some point. One of the things that really shocked me as I was researching this article is that the U.S. actually has no persistent capability to watch space in real time. So we don't really know what's happening up above moment by moment. What we get are basically batch processed radar images that give us a snapshot of what space looked like about six hours ago every six hours. And so there's a lot of room for something to take place and to begin to unfold far overhead that we would be literally blind to. It's a fascinating story. We didn't even get to touch on a lot of things that are in the article. It's a great read. Uh, We'll point people to it on our social media. Garrett Graff, contributing editor to Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. There's been a little bit of movement since we did that interview with Garrett Graff. President Donald Trump has authorized the Pentagon to set up the U.S. Space Command as its own combatant command. This is all in preparation for creating the Space Force as a separate brand of the military. Miranda, what do we know about this new development? Well, we know that he issued this order for the Space Command in the form of a memorandum, and that doesn't require congressional approval. Creating the Space Force, however, does, and that's dependent on action in Congress. And with the Democrats taking charge of the House next month, there is a chance that this Space Force may take a form completely different from what the White House originally envisioned. Yeah, this is a new branch of the military, so that's why Congress needs to get involved. Cost estimates for this Space Force have been in the billions, ranging from a few billion dollars to as much as $13 billion. There's lawmakers who are looking for less expensive alternatives, possibly making a space corps that could be created within the Air Force, just as the Marine Corps was created under the Navy. So they're looking for different things that they can do to keep the cost down. Yeah, they're hoping that the Space Command will help raise the profile of military space operations. During a visit just last week to NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida, Vice President Mike Pence said that the command is going to oversee all of the military activities in space across all the service branches. Just from the interview that we had with Garrett Graff, China and Russia are trying to assert their dominance in space. They're developing satellite jamming technology, anti-satellite weapons. And that's why it's so important. We need to make sure that all of our satellites, our GPS things, things that we rely on so much are safe in that space orbit. I mean, it's a huge undertaking. The Space Command is going to be the 11th combatant command in the U.S. military. They say it's going to take 18,000 military and civilian personnel working in space operations to handle all of this. It's, It's a huge undertaking. I know the president wants to get it done And the White House is still planning to have the Space Force in place by the end of 2020. And that is the next presidential election year. So we will see. Yeah, a lot of stuff to get done. Thanks, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.